Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at commonwealthclub.org. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm William Riley, chairman of the board of the Climate Works Foundation and former administrator of the United States Environmental Protection Agency. Climate One is a leadership dialogue on energy, the economy, and environment that aims to advance the transition to a prosperous and clean energy future. Three years ago this week, California took a big step towards such a future when Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger signed into law the country's first mandatory reductions in the greenhouse gases that are destabilizing our global climate. At a signing ceremony overlooking the San Francisco Bay, he signed the California Global Warming Solutions Act, or AB 32, also known as the Pavley Bill. And I'm very pleased that Ms. Pavley is here with us this afternoon. On that sunny, historic day, he was joined by Democrats and Republicans, including New York Governor George Pataki. Even Tony Blair was there, looming over us by satellite on a big screen. Everybody recognized history was being made in San Francisco on that day. The governor's historic commitment three years ago has been severely tested, particularly during the past year. One declared candidate for governor has already called for moratorium on its implementation. California has faced a simultaneous collapse of its public finances, the deep downturn of its economy, and the severe degradation of its most important source of water, the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, San Francisco-San Joaquin Delta. Through all the distractions of a brutal year of bad news, he has continued to hold high the banner of a new economy based on carbon-free fuels, investment in green jobs, and more efficient use of energy and water. As he approaches his final year in office, he can fairly claim to have set this state on a new course. In a state where water scarcity is a serious threat, he has called for a 20% reduction in per capita use, and he signaled a priority of restoring the Delta ecosystem by appointing a task force on which I've been privileged to serve. He did not achieve reform of water policy on his watch, but he did put the issue on the agenda. There are two ways people confront the challenge of climate change. One is to recount the threats with 
lurid foreboding, sea level rise, crop failures, species losses, water scarcity, and the rest. It's true, but nobody marches to that gloomy music. The other way is to highlight the inventions, the new technologies and jobs, the promise of an economic transformation that will enrich lives with new possibilities, even as we rein in greenhouse gases. That's the way this irrepressible, indefatigable, upbeat and inspiring man has framed the climate issue. And that, I believe, is an important reason he has led California to the most ambitious climate policy in America. Please join me in welcoming Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. I thought you were going to give him that whole speech. Thank you, and thank you very much. Um, thank you, Bill, for the wonderful introduction and for giving my speech. Thank you. Um, it's, uh, then we want to thank also the moderator, Greg Dalton, uh, who is the vice president of uh, the Commonwealth Club. We want to thank him for being here today and again asking the questions afterwards. And then the uh, chairwoman, Mary Nichols, uh, who is with the Air Resources Board, where she's sitting. She's right over here. Thank you very much for being here today. And then, of course, we have uh, Linda Adams, who is the Secretary of the EPA. Thank you very much. She's also right here in front. And then we have Secretary Mike Chrisman, uh, who is from the National Resources. I mean, thank you very much for being with us. And then we have, of course, Fran Barfley, Senator Fran Barfley, who is the author of AB32. Thank you very much uh, for being here. And I, of course, uh, I want to thank you all for inviting me back here again. I always love coming to the uh, Commonwealth Club. And I have been coming here to San Francisco and to do this speech here since 2002, actually, when I uh, campaigned up and down the state uh, for Proposition 49 for the After School Education and Safety Act. And uh, of course, not only do I like to come to the Commonwealth Club, I also like to come to San Francisco. I love this city, and especially since I got 60% of the votes right here. <laughs> I, I always liked that. The other 40% just never forgave me for my movie, Hercules in New York, which I totally, which I totally understand. So I've, uh, but I've spoken here uh, many times uh, before, and uh, like I said, with the after-school programs, and then about the state budget, about the economy, about the free trade. And, uh, of course, last year I was here uh, for the second anniversary of signing AB 32, which was uh, the California landmark global warming law. And uh, obviously, uh, I must have been so enlightening and charming that you wanted me to come back here for the third anniversary. So this is really great to be back here because my wife didn't even invite me to our third anniversary of our wedding. So uh, <laughs> it's great that you invited me for the, 30, uh, for the third anniversary here. And the bottom line is, the way it's divided up, the UN has Gaddafi, you have me. So this is, uh, this is the way we have it here today. <laughs> But anyway, so it's a, it's a great pleasure to, to, to talk today about AB32 because I think that most reasonable minds would agree that no single issue threatens the health and the prosperity of our nation and all nations more than climate change. And uh, yet for years and years, politicians 
have not really created the action. There was a lot of dialogue, but we have seen a lack of action and the will, the, the muster that, uh, you know, that action that is needed here. This was especially true in our nation's capital, uh, a nation which is one of the largest producers of greenhouse gases. And even over the past few days, when you look at the news of what was accomplished when it comes to the reduction of greenhouse gases or environmental protection, there was little commitment and the stalemate uh, continues on. Uh, President Obama was challenging China to join in the United States in the reduction of greenhouse gases and China, uh, Chinese President Hu, and, and challenged America to join them in the reduction of greenhouse gases, but this is exactly where it stayed. A lot of dialogue and again, no action. But as we know, California never waits for Washington. We don't wait for other states. We don't wait for other countries because we don't like to follow. We like to lead. And that is why three years ago, California took action on its own. I signed Assembly Bill 32, not too far from right here, which was in Treasure Island. And it was uh, authored by a great legislator, and that is uh, Senator Fran Parfley. And I just want to say to you all that we wouldn't be here today talking about this subject if it wouldn't be for this courageous woman who is a true environmentalist, who is the real deal, and who is a great visionary and a great leader who has brought people together from both sides. And we came up with this great agreement with AB32. So let's give her a big hand. She's sitting right here in front. And she will be coming up here afterwards, uh, after I'm through speaking, to say a few words, uh, because I think it will be interesting to hear also from her. Um, I think it was the most comprehensive global warming law ever signed. Uh, it commits California to reducing its greenhouse gases uh, by 25% by the year 2020. This is basically rolling back our greenhouse gas emissions to the 1990 level, and then an additional 80% by the year 2050. Now, the day I signed the bill, we had a huge celebration because it was worth celebrating. As a matter of fact, even Tony Blair made an appearance to congratulate us. But signing the law was just the beginning. It was very important, but it was just the beginning because it's all about follow-through. And this is like in sports. They always talk about follow-through. You hit the tennis racket, follow-through. The golf club, follow-through. In skiing, follow-through. And turn and finish the turns and so on. But it's the same in life, in everything else. It's about follow-through. So the steps that we are taking to get us there is the most important thing. And we have done really great, great work. For example, within the last few years, we have passed the world's first low-carbon fuel standard. We adopted regulations to capture the methane from landfill. We did the scoping plan. We improved the fuel efficiency of heavy-duty tractors and cars and we reduced the carbon footprint of our ports and of our ships. Uh, in fact, we did so much work that the day I'm proud to announce uh, that California has already adopted regulations that account for 40% of our AB32 goals, 40%. Now, let me just uh, say thank you to a woman that is really responsible for the follow-through, which is Mary Nichols. She's the chairwoman of the Air Resources Board, and we want to thank her and her staff because they've done extraordinary work. So let's give her a big hand. She's sitting right here in front.
And also she will be coming out afterwards and saying a few words to all of us because, like, let me tell you, uh, without this woman, we wouldn't be doing any of this. Now, we must push forward, of course, to finish the job. There's a lot of work that is still ahead. And one of the areas that we have to address is energy because 20% of California's greenhouse gases come from energy production. Right now, we are relying too heavily on coal-fired power plants, which are polluting the air and which are sickening our children. So last week, I signed an executive order to require 33% of California's energy to come from renewable sources by the year 2020. I say let's harness the power of our sun. Let's harness the power of, our, of the wind and other clean and renewable sources like biomass or geothermal. And in the coming months, we will continue to tackle other big issues in order to get us there to our goal of the reduction of 25% of greenhouse gases, like energy efficiency or the cap-and-trade program and our water negotiations. Now, you may say, why water? What does this have to do with greenhouse gases? Well, let me tell you. The delivery of water in California takes 20% of all of our energy. So you can see that part of our comprehensive water plan requires a 20% decrease in water consumption. That means there will be a decrease in a, a usage of energy, a decrease in the usage of water, and also a decrease in greenhouse gases because of that. So those are all of the kind of things that we need to do to get to our goal of 25%. Now, all of this is what is, of course, uh, what we are doing right here in California. But we all know that climate change is an issue that uh, transcends Borders. It is a global crisis and requires, it requires a global solution. When I signed this bill three years ago, California was leading a revolution, but without foot soldiers. We were all by ourselves. There was no one that really believed in any of that, and so they, we had to go out and we had to lead. And that's what the important thing here is, is, is all about leadership. That's why I don't understand why Washington is arguing with other countries and says, well, you go first then we follow. When did we ever do that? Did we do that when we said we're going to land on the moon, that you, China, and you, Russia, go first, then we go? Or when we go and talked about human rights, did we say, China, you go first with human rights, then we will follow you? No, we led. That is the bottom line. We led. So this is exactly what we did in California. We just led. And so we went to other states, and we asked them to follow us. We started forming partnerships with the western states, with the northeastern states, with southern states, with Canadian provinces, with European nations, and also with uh, Mexican states. As a matter of fact, there are six Mexican states that have joined our Western Climate Initiative. And earlier this year, the Mexican president, President Calderon, has announced that he too was taking action. The president has pledged to cut Mexicans' greenhouse gas emissions by 50 million tons by the year 2012. Now, that is extraordinary. So this is how we have people joining us, and we are leading. We can feel already a great tectonic shift on the way, because even through California, it's just a, a, a little place. Uh, when you look at the globe, but when it comes to the power of influence that we have on the rest of the world, it's an equivalent of a whole continent. So we are very proud of the power of influence we have. And we have seen it just recently again when it comes to China. As a matter of fact, Linda Adams, our environmental secretary, just recently 
participated in the launch of China's first greenhouse gas emission registry. Now, let me tell you why this is very important, because this will allow them to, me to measure how much individual businesses are emitting on greenhouse gases, which is the first step in order to reduce uh, those emissions. And so she was over there. She is a great leader, not only for the EPA but for California, but she's promoting you know, the reducing greenhouse gases all over the world. So let's give Linda Adams also a great hand who is sitting also here. I love it being surrounded by all those powerful and smart women. Look at them. Isn't that great? Man, I go home and I'm surrounded by one and I'm coming here to work and I'm surrounded by powerful women. It's women everywhere. But this is really great. Women power. I love it. Now, all of this stuff that we've been talking about, China now measuring the greenhouse gas emissions, is very important because the only way we really know if any country is reducing greenhouse gases is if we know what they're emitting, emitting right now. And we have to measure that. So unless they measure, we have nothing. So this is now why this was a very important step. And I think it's fantastic for the future, and it's fantastic for our environment. But of course, fighting climate change is about much more than just the environment. It is also about seizing an incredible economic opportunity here. In the 20th century, wealth and prosperity was fueled by dirty oil, dirty cars, and dirty factories. We had so many millions of workers supporting those industries, and of course those industries supported jobs. Uh, but now we have an opportunity to create the new economic foundation for the 21st century, to build uh, on fuel, on clean fuel, on clean factories, on clean energy, and on clean cars. 150 years ago, it was the Industrial Revolution that changed the world and ushered in new era of prosperity. But now, today, the Green Revolution would do exactly the same. Let's take uh, the workers that are toiling in the coal mines and put them to work building solar plants. Let's turn the oil refineries into biodiesel refineries. And let's turn the dirty coal plants into clean coal plants. Now you say, how do we do that? Well, there is now the first one. Just two days ago, the New York Times wrote so eloquently about that. There is now already the first uh, clean coal plant in West Virginia. As a matter of fact, it is a sensation. They're sequestering the CO2. They're pumping it back into the ground. So now they have people from China and from India and from Japan and from all over the world going there to look at that great plant to see how they can copy and do the same thing. Imagine if we could do that all over the world in every country that has sequestered the CO2 and those coal plants. So this is why I always say that technology will save us all. It's all about technology, technology, technology. So that's why it's important to unleash the tremendous power of the capitalist spirit and the private marketplace to come up with those types of clean and green technologies. In fact, our environmental goal will be absolutely unachievable if it wouldn't be for capitalism and the private enterprise. We are going, what we are doing here in California is the best kind of public-private partnership, which means basically the government is doing what it does best, which is to uh, passing laws, setting standards and regulations, and then get out of the way so that entrepreneurs and innovators can do what they do best. A wave of green innovation is washing over our state right now. As a matter of fact, the Wall Street Journal calls it the New California Gold Rush. 
In just the last three years, scientists and entrepreneurs have pumped more than $6 billion into, our, into venture capital into California. So since 2005, green jobs in California have grown 10 times faster than other jobs. And we lead the nation in a number of clean energy businesses with more than 10,000. California companies hold 40% of the nation's new patents in solar and in wind technology. In fact, a new report shows that solar installations this year alone in California have gone up by 120%. Think about that staggering number. I've seen solar all across our state. There is great, great stuff that is happening all over our state. On parking garages, at our universities, on warehouses and big factories, on our prisons, even on the rooftop of the Staples Center. Maybe the Lakers won the NBA games because they got this extra energy from solar. Who knows? I'm just guessing here. Now, also, of course, big utilities are also jumping on board and creating some action here. Southern California Edison has announced a plan to install solar panels on 150 warehouses all over California. Now, warehouses, the important part here is because they have the biggest square footage, of course, on top of the rooftop. So they're anywhere between 500,000 and 5 million square feet. So that's how they have 65 million square feet of solar panels that they have committed, which is those panels will generate 250 megawatts of clean energy, enough to power 165,000 homes. And other utilities like PG&E are not just standing by, they have also recognized uh, the economic value of going green. And leaders from around the world are coming now to California to see all the innovation and all the excitement that is going on in our state. Just last week, I brought the French foreign trade minister to a business here in San Francisco called Solasheim. Now, this business came up with a way to convert algae into fuel. That is 90% more energy efficient and actually has a reduction of greenhouse, greenhouse gases by 90%. In fact, the U.S. Navy just signed a deal with them. Now, that is very important because, as you know, ships are one of the biggest polluters because they're using dirty diesel fuel. So now the Navy starts using some of this clean fuel that has a reduction of 90% of greenhouse gases. So this is great, great stuff that is going on in California. I get all pumped up, of course, by thinking just about all of those exciting things that are happening across our state. And the important thing is, of course, that we are seeing all of this great action, not because of guilt. It's not because we want to make people feel guilty that they're using a plasma TV or they're using the jacuzzi or they're flying a plane or they're using the SUV, none at all, but because it makes economic sense to do the right thing. Now, we all know that there are the naysayers also in this environmental movement. There's people out there that are believing quite the opposite. And of course, they like to hold on to the status quo. And in this economic crisis, their cries are growing louder and louder. They demand that we slow down. But of course, I made it very clear that the train has left the station. We are gonna slow down, we do the opposite. We go full speed ahead. Because I know there's far more economic opportunity than, than economic risk in this challenge. And I know that it is possible to protect the environment and to protect the economy at the same time. That's something that I said in 2003 when I ran for governor, and that's what I'm still saying today. 
because I have seen it firsthand. I have seen it work in my state here, and I know the best is yet to come. Last year, I hosted the, the Governor's Global Climate Summit in Los Angeles. And let me tell you something. This was such a huge success. It was so spectacular that now we are hosting the second annual summit, and we have uh, more than 30 governors from hundreds of different and hundreds of different experts from 70 different states and provinces coming together in Los Angeles just next week. We will have representatives of countries from six different continents coming together. Our goal is to form a broad and international alliance. So when the UN starts their work in Copenhagen in December, they will have the results of our summit as a framework for a new Kyoto Agreement. And I sure hope they will come to an agreement in December in Copenhagen, and we will do everything in our power to help them. And then we can uh, you know, put not just our nation, but the entire world on a path towards a clean and sustainable future. Wouldn't that be a great, great thing? Wouldn't that be a great legacy for our generation to do that? Think about that. I don't think there is any gift that would be better for our children and our grandchildren than that, to hand them over a better and a cleaner world than we inherited. And so this is why I say, let's go to work, let's roll up our sleeves and make it happen. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now I would like to call out Senator Fran Parfley. Like I said, she's the author of AB32 and has been a terrific partner in all of this. And so let's give her a big, big welcome. I want to thank Governor Schwarzenegger and the Commonwealth Club for including me in the celebration of our third anniversary. And I have to put in a plug uh, for a magazine that just came out. It's an October issue of The Atlantic. And Governor Schwarzenegger, of course, you were featured in there, and rightfully so. But also local San Francisco leaders, Peter Darby of PG&E, talks about uh, their role in the passage of this bill. And Arthur Rosenfeld, who lives over in the Berkeley area. It's a marvelous uh, article to read, about six pages long. And it talks about, on energy, California got it right. Um, the governor asked me to speak a little bit about the past and some of the challenge of passing uh, AB 32, the Global Warming Solutions Act. And back then, in 2005 and 2006, the big argument was, um, do we have to make a choice between the economy and the environment? Well, AB 32, uh, thanks to the leadership of the governor and many other business leaders, proved that we can do both. We can create that clean energy future for tomorrow, plus have a healthy environment. In fact, I thought one of the tipping points in that discussion was a press conference that we held over at the state capitol. It was led by a lot of Silicon Valley business leaders. I remember John Doerr's statements in particular. He said, put a cap on emissions. Send that signal to the marketplace. Have California become the home of clean technologies. And that is what is happening. Even in the downturn of this economic recession, uh, we are seeing startup companies, investment of billions of dollars, 
in these companies, and California is indeed open for business. And I can't tell you about the excitement in high school and college campuses. Students everywhere in California get this. They see the future. They want to assist in tackling the biggest economic and environmental problem in the 21st century, and that is climate change. I wanted to end my comments with just talking about some of the impacts of climate change here in California because it was uh, the findings that we put in AB 1493, which is the clean car law that passed. It's now a, a federal, federal law, thanks to the good work of Mary Nichols, sort of behind the scenes working. Thank you very much. But the findings we put in 1493, as well as uh, being discussed in the implementation of AB 32, are even more true today. Think of the economic costs if we don't tackle our water supply issue and reliability issue. We're seeing earlier melt of the Sierra snowpack, which is causing problems for water supply and sustainability that feeds agricultural areas as well as urban areas. Uh, we're seeing the, starting to see the impacts of sea level rise on our 1,100-mile coastline. Think of the impacts not only the ecosystem but our tourist industry that relies on having a healthy uh, coastline. What will be the impacts on insurance rates with sea level rise? And how will that impact the water quality in the delta as salt water pours into that estuary that winds its way down to agricultural fields in Southern California? Health impacts to, uh, health-related impacts to climate change are real. Think of the economic costs as far as rising health care, heat episodes, increased asthma, uh, vector-borne diseases. The risks are real, and the costs are high. So the most expensive thing we can do in the state regarding climate change is nothing. Investing in the future is smart. It's smart for the environment, it's smart for the economy, and that's why um, it's a pleasure for me to be here today to share with you uh, the enthusiasm I have for this issue that's resonating not only in California, but in states around our country, excuse me, in states around our nation and other countries in the world. We have leaders from all over the world come visit us in Sacramento. We become the model of some of these innovative solutions and ideas and California can seize this opportunity to, for um, clean tech to become the next, next economic engine of this great state. So with that, I want to introduce to you uh, someone who's doing so much work on this particular issue, not just here in California, but nationally and internationally. That's the Secretary of California Environmental Protection Agency, Linda Adams. Thank you very much, Senator. And the Senator and I are very good friends. We've worked on uh, many great pieces of legislation over the years. And um, the governor's very right uh, that we have to lead. It's something that California does. And although we recognize that we will always be a leader, we also recognize that we cannot fight this fight alone. So I have been focusing, while Mary Nichols is doing the tough job of, of, of implementing AB 32, I have had the pleasure of focusing my efforts on um, the international uh, scene 
And we're very, very proud of our efforts to work with other states and nations around the world. The governor mentioned that I helped launch a voluntary registry in China um, in, the, in just this spring, and that's a very basic tool that was lacking uh, in China and is lacking in other developing countries, the tool for businesses to actually report and understand their emissions and track their reductions. I also just returned from um, Jiangsu province in China. We are working on a partnership with Jiangsu. They are known as the California of China, and I um, attended their first annual um, Green Tech Expo and saw their technologies, their solar panels, their electric cars. It was a very exciting um, event, and uh, we will be partnering with Jiangsu to encourage uh, energy efficiency and renewable energy policies. We are also working with our closest um, neighbors, Mexico, to extend voluntary offsets into Mexico so that we can achieve pollution reductions along our shared border. Um, when you write, uh, any of you who voluntarily offset your air travel, for example, um, that those funds can go now into projects along the Mexican border as well as projects in California and the U.S. And something more recently, through the United Nations Development Program, we are working with African nations who have been left out of the international carbon market and are looking to California for help. So we're very excited about that. And also, we know that deforestation around the world accounts for 20% of our greenhouse gas emissions. And Secretary Chrisman, who is with us here today is doing some very great work on deforestation, developing an action plan with Brazil and Indonesia to avoid deforestation of our world's most important rainforests. So again, we cannot fight this fight alone, and we will continue with these great relationships. And I've just given you a little teaser of some of the things that we might be announcing at the Governor's uh, Summit next week, so I hope uh, some of you will be able to attend and um, uh, see how we will continue those uh, great efforts with our partners around the world. So now I would like to introduce uh, the woman who has the, the really hard work to do uh, in implementing AB 32, and there could not be a better uh, person in the state to do that job, Mary Nichols. Thank you so much, Linda. A little over two years ago, uh, I accepted the governor's invitation to come back to the Air Resources Board, which uh, a journalist recently referred to as the most powerful agency that no one has ever heard of. Uh, I had heard of the Air Resources Board because I had the opportunity to work there uh, almost 30 years ago uh, in the days when we were first tackling smog in California and to participate in the work that has led California to be known around the world among those who are involved in uh, dealing with the ravages of air pollution as a very technically competent uh, agency that also knows how to adopt regulations that are sustainable. But when I stepped into this role, there was a raging debate going on 
And it even was reflected to some degree, I think, in the uh, arguments that took place when AB 32 was making its way through the legislature about how we were actually going to do the things that the bill told us to do. That is, okay, you've set a target. Uh, you're going to uh, return your emissions levels to 1990 by 2020, but nobody really knows how to do that. It's too hard. It probably can't be done. And there were people saying, oh, yes, we could just do it all if we only regulated everything that possibly could use fuel or could cause any emissions. And there were other people who were saying, well, the way to solve it is to do it only through a cap-and-trade program. And, of course, what we did when we actually began to work on this was we sat down. We looked at every sector of the economy. We looked at where the emissions were coming from. We had the benefit of the years of work that had gone before us, uh, including the auto uh, law that Fran Pavley uh, also uh, brought into a fruition. And we just put it together. We put together a plan. And guess what? It includes regulations for those specific sources where you need a regulatory approach. It includes a great deal of a market, uh, both in those regulations and in a cap-and-trade program. And it clearly shows that we can meet our goals and we can do it in a way that is affordable and we believe beneficial uh, for the state of California. We couldn't possibly do this without the leadership that we get from Governor Schwarzenegger and the support that we have continued to have uh, from the legislature. But truly, this has engaged the imagination and the work of people all around this state. And in addition to the international uh, audience that uh, Linda Adams referred to, uh, we have engaged literally hundreds of thousands of Californians in monitoring their carbon footprints, People have engaged with us through our website. They attend our workshops. They participate in the development of this program. It has been one of the most open and collaborative and transparent examples of a major policy effort that I think has ever been accomplished anywhere. And uh, I think that's what gives us the belief that it will be sustainable and we will be able to continue on and reach those goals. It is uh, now my great pleasure to turn the program back over uh, to the governor and to the moderator and just want to reaffirm what a pleasure it is to be here uh, with the Commonwealth Club and to recognize Climate One's leadership in this area as well because without the kind of forum that we're having here today, we would not be able to be celebrating all the work that has been done over the last three years. Thank you very much. Our thanks to Mary Nichols, Chair of the Air Resources Board, and welcome, Governor Schwarzenegger. Welcome back to Climate One. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. And I have to say, listening to uh, all three of them speak, I'm so proud of you, and I'm so glad that you could make it here. Let's give them another big hand here. I'm Greg Dalton, the founder of Climate One, and we have a lot of questions from the audience, Governor. Um, you mentioned in your remarks that it's possible to address the economy and the environment at, at the same time. Uh, several questions ask you to respond more specifically to Meg Whitman's comments this week, saying that she would stop AB 32 and suspend it to uh, create jobs. And uh, another question from the audience says, your leadership has moved climate change away from being a partisan issue. How do we keep this nonpartisan support amidst a competitive governor's race over the next year? 
Well, first of all, to the first uh, question about uh, McWhitman, I think that one has to kind of understand that this is rhetoric uh, that is going on amongst the candidates, and you will hear all kinds of stories. What will happen in reality and what would they do when they go into office is probably a whole different ballgame. And I think that uh, she will probably reconsider what she said and will see that this is the greatest thing that can happen for California is to, to move forward. I'm sure she does not be, want to be counted as one of those Republicans that will want to move us back to the Stone Age or something like that. So I think that uh, you know, I would pay no attention to uh, this kind of rhetoric and just look much more at the substance because uh, I think the substance maybe says something different. So um, I would just caution you on that. Number two, I think that when it comes to uh, you know, doing this in a post-partisan way or in a bipartisan way, when you talk about the environment, I think that you could not do it any other way because it is not a political issue. I mean, it has nothing to do with Democrats versus Republicans. I think that both of Democratic uh, families or Republican families, the kids ought to uh, breathe uh, clean air, and we all want to have an energy-efficient state, that we all want to have a reduction in global warming and uh, fight global warming and uh, fight the, you know, to the increase of greenhouse gases. I think that when you talk about education or when you talk about the environment or when you talk about health care, it ought not to be a political issue. I think that Democrats and Republicans want to be healthy, they want to breathe clean air and all of those kind of things. So I always will stress that in the Capitol that uh, that's why I think Democrats feel comfortable and that's why, for instance, Senator Fran Pavley felt comfortable to talk to me because she knew where my heart was. Uh, that it was not that I'm not stuck with the ideology, that I was stuck only in one thing, and that is serving the people of California. That's what I promised when I got elected. We've heard a lot today about political leadership, regulatory leadership. There's also corporate leadership. Uh, citing fundamental differences, Peter Darby, CEO of PGD, withdrew this week from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, which questions the scientific consensus on global warming. Jim Rogers, the head of another large energy company, Duke Energy, recently pulled out of a coal lobby for similar reasons. Yet many other CEOs, including members of the Green Group, the U.S. Climate Action Partnership, are claiming to be green, but they're doing different things in private, and you probably have access to see these things. Which CEOs do you think are really uh, being true leaders, and which ones are playing both sides? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm not going to go through a list of uh, CEOs here. Um, just, just one or two. I, I can... <laughs> I can tell you that um, I think that there are some businesses that are struggling with the idea of cutting back on greenhouse gases and to make the necessary changes. But I think it is really great that in California that a majority of businesses have jumped on board. They see that this is coming. They see that this is better. That they look at what opportunities are there because I think that uh, going green or going uh, and reducing greenhouse gases it provides great opportunities, and I mentioned them in my speech, of the kind of investments, the venture capital that is coming to California. Every year, it's the amount of venture capital that is, is doubling. Uh, the amount of solar panels that are being installed are doubling. I mean, we see really great, great action. All kinds of new technologies are coming up. So I think we, one just has to concentrate on those things than getting stuck with the old way uh, of, of doing business. And uh, I think there's some people that are still you know, somewhat maybe selfish about it, and they just think about the immediate profit. Anytime you make changes like that, you have to make certain sacrifices. 
But the question is, is you know, what is, uh, is bigger and more powerful, the, the kind of result that you get out of the sacrifice or the sacrifices that you make? And I think that the result is that we will create many more jobs that actually green technology will create, will be the big job creator in the future, and we will clean our state, and we will be a great motivator to other states and to other countries to do the same thing and to make a commitment to roll back the greenhouse gases. We, I mean, we are absolutely adamant that we can go and do both, to have those reductions of 25% of greenhouse gases by the year 2020, and then go beyond that to do the extra 80% by the year 2050, but also at the same time to see an economic boom again and to bring our economy back. Going into this year, uh, water and renewable electricity were two of your top uh, priorities, and you mentioned you signed an executive order on that uh, 2020. Uh, A question from the audience wonders whether that executive order could be repealed by a future governor, and if it wouldn't be better, uh, more enduring, to have a law rather than an executive order. Well, I think that our executive order to uh, make a commitment to have 33% of renewable energy by the year 2020 is actually stronger than the law. Even though I am looking forward to continuing working with the legislators uh, to go and also create legislation. I think both of them are always uh, the best. Uh, but let's not forget that uh, the legislators came to me with a bill that was basically a bill for the special interests. It was for labor and for others, other special interests, but it sure was not to just accomplish the goal of 33% by the year 2020. And that's why I say they would not sign it. It represented also protectionism to say that a certain amount has to be created here in California. We can never say this to the power companies that a certain amount of green, uh, of renewable energy has to come from California because many times we get stuck with the permits. We have tried now for six years, for instance, to get the permits for, for a power link, the Sunrise Power Link. Uh, so if it takes six years for, for a... Uh, a a transmission line, how do you go and build uh, the solar plant somewhere in the Mojave Desert when you don't have a power line to come out? So who is going to invest in that? So it makes it very difficult. So sometimes environmentalists are in a way of environmental kind of uh, solutions. And uh, so in this case, this is one of them. So this is why I say let's not go and put any kind of limitations on it of what can you do get outside the state and what can you get inside the state. We will do everything we can to create the jobs inside the state, to create the, the renewable energy inside the state. But if we can't get the permits, let's have them be able to go outside the state and get it outside. And remember, reducing or creating or buying energy from outside the state has the same effect. Because we're talking here about reducing greenhouse gases to go and to combat global warming. So it's a global phenomenon, as I said earlier. It goes past our borders. So one should not look at uh, green energy uh, and renewable energy from outside the state as evil and from within the state as good. All energy that is renewable is good all over the world, no matter where it is from. Do you acknowledge that a future governor could rescind an executive order? I think that future governors can make a lot of changes in everything. If it is, uh, you know, uh, they can change uh, laws that we have passed uh, that, that, uh, in the past. They can go go in a different direction with our budget system. They can go in a different direction with our uh, tax system. They can go in a different direction with our health care, with healthy families, uh, with all of those different things. So I think that we're not trying to make decisions uh, for another governor in the future, but this is solid. 
Uh, and, and I would like to just have a briefly have a Mary Nichols comment on that of how solid this really is uh, having those regulations and her working towards those regulations. Oh, sorry. Uh, thank you. Uh, the um, executive order that the governor signed directs my board to adopt by next July a rule, and we're already at work with the Public Utilities Commission, the State Energy Commission, and the California Independent System Operator to develop that rule. Each of those entities has a role to play. Uh, the PUC through their, uh, their regulatory authority, the Energy Commission through its permitting and rules, uh, ARB because of AB 32 has the overarching responsibility for achieving the greenhouse gas reductions. And all of those regulations will have the force of law as soon as they're adopted. So yes, as the governor says, a future governor could come along and say we want to change all of that and direct everybody to do something different. But that's true with legislation as well. Thank you, Mary Nichols. Uh, to meet your goal of a million solar roofs, California must raise the cap of how much electricity utilities are required to buy from homeowners with panels on their roof to 5% from 2.5%. This is very important to the solar companies, the green jobs you've talked about. Do you support raising uh, that cap? Yes, uh, I support that. Uh, but in the meantime, I have to tell you that uh, our program, our Million Solar Roof program, has been a huge success. I think mm -hmm. that the, the incentives that we're giving, the financial incentives that the people, they have really seen that this makes sense, that it pays back uh, because it really lessens the amount of electricity that you have to pay for. And it's a great investment, and it's good. It makes people be able to contribute to the reduction of uh, CO2, of greenhouse gases. So I think it has been a huge success. And the key thing is not just to rely on homes. That's what the Million Solar Roof is about. But we also want to go and stress for uh, energy companies, power companies, to go and make those agreements like Southern California Edison has done and like PG&E is doing right now, which is to make agreements with warehouse owners that have a huge amount of uh, square footage on top. And tops of warehouses are not being used for anything. So it's not productive at all. It doesn't make any money. You can't store anything on it. So why not blanket it, all of the warehouses in California, with solar panels? It brings you extra money. It provides the energy for your own warehouse, and then the rest of it you can send to the grid, and the, the energy companies buy it from you. Uh, so I think that you, there's a great partnership there that is being created and very innovative. Nowhere in the world that they're doing those kind of things. And like I said, just the last deal that uh, Southern California Edison made is an equivalent of uh, 250 you know, uh, megawatts, and that is powering 165,000 homes. So this is really huge. So if more companies do that, that's the direction we have to go. And I'm so happy of the kind of action that is being created in all different areas, not just in warehouses, but when you drive around now, when you travel around California and you see uh, the solar panels on top of, uh, uh, you know, university parking lots and uh, parking garages, when you see it at the prisons, when you see it on top of hospitals, when you see it on top of schools. So it's really spreading very quickly, and that's why we have seen a 120% increase in the installation of solar panels over this last year. Water is another issue that Bill Riley mentioned in his uh, opening remarks. It's related to climate change. Declining mountain snowpack is already causing more water scarcity in the western U.S. You support $10 billion in bonds to create new water storage and conveyance in California. Can California afford more debt 
during these economic times, should users share some of the costs of water? Absolutely. I think users should share some of the cost. Um, uh, but the bottom line here is that you should never think about, when you think about infrastructure bonds, that as soon as the people vote uh, to move forward with the infrastructure bonds, that that day the money will get spent. And from that day on that you have debt payments and uh, have to pay it off. That's not the way it works. When you build water infrastructure, it would take us for the next 15 or 20 years. Experts say it could be taking as much as 20 years to build the, the water storage below the ground, above the ground water storage, the water delivery system to fix the delta and to fix the ecosystem and all of those things take years and years and years. So you take a bond, let's say if it's $10 billion or if it's $12 billion or $9 billion, whatever it's going to end up being, uh, and nothing will be almost spent until 2012 or 13. Probably the real infrastructure, until you get the permits and everything set, will be not until 2014 or 2015. By that time, the economy will be back. That's when we start spending this money. So this is why for you it's important to know that by that time, we have paid down our other bonds that are now out there, and then we start the other bonds start kicking in and we start paying those bonds. And it is, again, not the whole $10 billion that will be taken uh, and will be used that day in 2014. It will be over a period of, like I said, 15 years that this money will be used and then slowly will be paid off. We're discussing clean energy and climate change with Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, another aspect on water is, is adaptation and rising sea levels. You've directed state agencies to prepare for higher sea levels, more fires, etc. How should California balance reducing carbon pollution and planning to live and build differently in relation to land and water? Well, I think that we have to recognize the fact that uh, global warming is real and the effects are real. And we can't turn back the clock now and start from the beginning. I think that there's certain things that will happen now, and this is why it's very important that now it's just a matter of how devastating of an effect it will have. So we have control over that, and that's why California is going all out with its leadership and trying to convince other states and other countries to go in the same direction. Uh, and we want to move ahead, and we want to be on the offense. We want to study it very carefully and uh, see what effect it's going to have when we have a rise of sea level. We know by the year 2100, we will have a sea level rise of four feet. Now, if you think about what that means on the beaches in California and on our coastline in general, and the unbelievable effect that it could have on our farming, because that means that water will be pushed in from the, from the, from the sea, and then that will flood then our uh, agriculture land and then you couldn't plant anymore. So this is why we have to do everything we can as part of this water infrastructure to think about all of those things. That's why we passed already bonds, $4.6 billion worth, to fix our levees and to build our levees really strong so it can withstand all of this water. So in case there is a big storm or an earthquake that it doesn't wipe out some of the levees and destroy hundreds of thousands of homes and we have a bigger flood than, than they had in New Orleans because that's the threat that we had a few years ago and luckily I convinced the legislature and the people of California to approve the $4.6 billion in bonds. But there is uh, those kind of things, the rising sea level and those kind of things will happen. And what we have to do is prepare ourselves for it and where to build homes. And all of those kind of things we have to 
again, think through all of that so we don't make mistakes. A uh, question from the audience. If it's all about technology, then why are we cutting budgets of our universities? Well, it's not the... First of all, let me just say that I'm the last one that uh, you know, likes to go and make any cuts to education. If it is our universities or if it is our elementary schools or kindergartens through 12th or our uh, um, you know, trade schools, any of those things, uh, community colleges, any of those things, it's not good. But what is your choice when you are being told in the budget that you do uh, like last February that you have to make uh, come up with solutions or because you have $42 billion less in revenues. $42 billion less in revenues than anticipated. And then you do the May revise and you do the budget for the next year within a six-month period. And then you again find out that you have a shortfall of revenues of $23 billion. So now you have $42 billion and you have $23 billion. So you add all of this up. Where do you go now and fill the hole for this over $60 billion hole? So somewhere you have to make cuts. So you go across the board. Now, of course, we found some solutions in borrowing some money and pushing some of the problems out to the future and raising taxes, which was $12.5 billion. But the fact of the matter is, eventually you got to cut. So people, of course, are screaming, you're cutting from our parks. You're cutting from our schools. You're cutting from our prisons. You're cutting from law enforcement. Don't touch law enforcement. Don't touch the in-home services. Don't touch the health care. Don't touch the healthy family program. Well, where should you touch it? Where are you going to fill the hole? So, of course, everyone is screaming. Every one of those interests is screaming. The teachers are screaming. The doctors are screaming. The hospitals are screaming. The prison guards are screaming. Law enforcement is screaming. The firefighters are screaming and saying, we don't have enough money to fight the fires. And on and on and on. Where are you going to take it? So that is the problem that you have. So it is important for people to know that I was not elected to sit there and to promise you things that we cannot deliver. That this is a world crisis that we have been in in the last two years. There's no two ways about it. It was the worst crisis in decades. As a matter of fact, in America, it's the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. But when you have a crisis like that, everyone has to go and tighten their belts. They cannot go and ask for the same amount of money because the whole world is worth one-third less. That's the simple, the simple fact. So we have one-third less revenues right now in California, and we have to deal with that fact. That is what it is, and that's what leadership is all about. And when I was sworn in, the governors that were there at the swearing-in ceremony, they said to me, enjoy this day. <laughs> have a good time and live it up today. <laughs> so I said, what do you, why do you stress today? They say, because it's the only day you will have that good of a time. Because there will be times where you sit there and where you get attacked from every side, from Democrats and Republicans, from education to law enforcement to the health groups and labor and everybody. Because when you have shortfalls in revenues, you can't please anybody. That's as simple as that. And that's exactly what it is. They were absolutely right. But you know something? With all those difficulties... And with all those tough decisions that you have to make, 
And with all the attacks that you get out there and the poll numbers go down when you are going through an economic crisis like that because people are obviously are not happy with the things that are going on because there's less money. Even though with all of those tough things, I've never had a job that I enjoyed more. Never. Because to sit there every day and to give something back to the state, the state that has given me every opportunity that I had, they gave me the opportunity to be a bodybuilding champion, a weightlifting champion, to make millions of dollars, to have a great movie career, to have a great wife, to have a great family and all of those things. Everything I got from California, from the United States. And so for me to work now for nothing and to take a little bit of that beating and to have a tough time sometimes, I take this any time to give something back to this great, great state and to this great country. Our guest at Climate One today is California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. We're discussing energy and climate change. We have a group of uh, fourth graders in the audience today, and one of them writes, what do you say to your kids about climate change? You talked about future generations, but how about your kids? What do you say to them? Well, first of all, I've had major fights with my kids. (laughs) I come from Europe, and my mother, well, first of all, I was not in a house where we had Um, running water. So we had an outhouse and we had a kind of a system where we carried the water from 200 yards away from a well to our house upstairs to the second floor where we lived. And, um, And then my father would wash himself first and then my mother would wash herself and then my brother would wash himself with the same water And then I would wash myself when it was all dirty because I was the youngest. So that's how I grew up because conservation was big in Europe, especially since I grew up after the Second World War. There was no food. There was little electricity. There were blackouts left and right. There was nothing. After the war was worse than during the war. So we had absolutely nothing. So that's how I grew up. So it's natural when we were taught to always switch off the light when you go and leave the room and that you can only use water sparingly or to drink. That's it, not to waste any water, period. So it's a totally different atmosphere. So now my kids go do the shower in the morning, and they have a stool that they put in the shower, and then they sit in the shower like this. And I'm standing outside, and I'm timing it now, and I said to myself, this is now 15 minutes that this kid is taking a shower. So I open up the, the, the shower door and I turn off the hot water and then all of a sudden, you know, he starts screaming because now the water is cold. So I finally had to implement rules at home and tell them that if they take showers that are longer than five minutes, that there will be consequences, like where they would not be able to go out, where they would not be able to bring friends over and on and on and on. And so... There is rules that we have, like the, the kind of European rules a little bit, like we have to always make our own bed, so they make their own bed. They have, to wash, they have to all wash their own clothes. They have to all go and wash them together so there's not one with three socks washing the clothes and then <laughs> using up all this water. So they all have to fill up the washing machine and share the washing machine. And they have to take a limited amount of showers, and I will sometimes spy on them when it comes to the showers and time <laughs> them. And I told them if I catch them, there will be a thing, an, a, a, 
a, a, something built in that I have from Europe, which only allows you to take a shower for five minutes and then it turns off automatically, which they have in Europe in gymnasiums, so you don't take a shower for the long. So those are the kind of things that, that we do. And I, I teach them also. We, for instance, in our house have installed solar panels on a hill so that powers all of the swimming pool, which uses the most energy always in the jacuzzi. Uh, we have, for instance, changed our hummus uh, from regular uh, engines to hydrogen engines or to biofuel engines. So they see all of those things. So we are teaching them that you've got to be conscious all the time about what to do and also about recycling how we handle recycling. So they're very much involved in all of those things because I think what we tell our kids and how we teach our kids is extremely important because this is the next generation. I'm just looking out to look at the children to see if they got a little more than they might have bargained for on that one. <laughs> and the parents, parents too, some ideas. Uh, um, Senator John McCain introduced, the, we have just a few minutes left, so it's straight. Um, Senator John McCain introduced the first climate change bill ever in the U.S. Senate in, in 2003. Yet lately, he's become a little less assertive on that issue. You campaigned for him in Ohio last year for president. Have you spoken to him recently about climate change and energy? Have you thought about joining forces with him to motivate other Republicans? Well, of course, I stay in touch with him, and uh, we run into each other, and we talk uh, and we talk about you know, all kinds of different issues, if it is healthcare and the environment uh, and other policies that are important and that are right now being debated in, in, in Washington. Uh, but you know, he, I always said that he was uh, an extraordinary leader because even though Republicans were all so much against the environmental changes and to protect the environment and reducing greenhouse gases, he was out there a real leader and he fought and he was always a man of compromise and this is why he was also involved heavily with Teddy Kennedy when it comes to immigration reform. He was right out there and said the way it is and, that, and, and talked about the reality of it rather than just about the politics of it and uh, that's why he was also out there with, uh, with the environmental changes. So, you know, he was terrific and he's going to fight for all of those things. Again, quickly, and we'll get to the close. Uh, last month, the U.S. State Department issued a permit for a new pipeline to carry half a million barrels of, a day of Canadian tar sands to the U.S. Midwest. Uh, supporters say it's better to get oil from Canada than the Mideast, yet it would make more difficult to achieve a national low-carbon fuel standard, which is one of your, uh, I believe, one of your priorities and, and things you want to export from California. Do you think that was a good move by the Obama administration? I think it's a good move, uh, number one. And number two, I think that it switches out using the oil from the Middle East. And I think we have to do everything that we can to not get our oil from over there. Because as long as we get our oil from over there, we have to have our military there. We have to protect our interests there. I think if we ideally one day do not need the oil from the Middle East, I think everything would change. And I think a lot of you, uh, a lot of less soldiers, American soldiers, will have to die. So security first, sure. Uh, we're at the end of our time here together with Governor Schwarzenegger at Climate One. Uh, several questions about your future, uh, and I'll combine these together. Uh, when you're finished serving as governor, would you accept a position in the Obama administration? Um, would you consider being a global green ambassador, uh, as you've done very well, and as, currently as Al Gore does? 
And would you consider starring in the role of governor of California in a policy-driven, cutting-edge TV series? Um, sort of uh, like The West Wing, but better. Um, yes to all of those things. <laughs> so I think that it will be... First of all, I made it very clear that um, any way I can help the Obama administration to be successful, because I would do so. If it is, and, and I don't need to get paid for it. I don't need to even have an official position or anything. I don't care about any of that. Uh, for me, it is just important that I can contribute. And if I can make uh, you know, America successful, I again look at it not as a partisan uh, thing, a uh, Democrat versus Republican, I think that we all have the duty to do everything we can to make this administration successful and the next administration successful and the next administration. It doesn't matter if it's Republican or Democrat. We need them to be successful because then America is successful. So any way I can contribute, and I've said this to the president in the past, any way I can help, I will be there. And number two, I don't know if I'm going to go back in the show business when I'm finished or do a TV series or a movie or anything like this. I'm only thinking about one thing now. There's a few very important things that I have um, uh, committed myself to uh, that I want to get accomplished in this next uh, year and a half and then continue working on policy and working and assisting the state and serving the state and the people of California in one way or the other. And I think that now we are negotiating our water infrastructure and I think it is so important that we get this done in order to really be able to provide reliable and safe water for the future, and not just for the next five years, but for the next 50 years. And I think, again, friend Parfley has some great legislation there uh, to go and to monitor groundwater, which is very important because she is a big believer that if you don't uh, you know, count and if you don't have a way of measuring things, if it is, comes to greenhouse gases, if it comes to groundwater, then you can never set a goal and accomplish those goals. So, again, she's out there, and I'm working with her on that, and we all work together, Democrats and Republicans are working together to get the water infrastructure done, which is very important to, uh, for the people of California, for our farmers, for our businesses, for everybody. Our thanks to California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger for his comments today here at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, and now this meeting is adjourned. Thank you very much. <laughs>